All right, thank you all for being here, and you mothers, happy Mother's Day. We are grateful for you guys, we're grateful for your impact in the kingdom and for your efforts to raise children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, so we praise the Lord for you mothers. Now that you're here and seated, I want you to stand. If you could get your Bible, turn to Psalm 130. As you're turning there, I will say I picked this psalm because our, um, our topic for today is John Owen, and he wrote a long work on this psalm, and, um, and as we talk about his life and his impact and his works, I think we'll see why this psalm and so much of Scripture was beneficial to him and it comes out in his writings. But let's read the psalm, and then we will pray. So Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all iniquities. So God, we praise you, Lord, we praise you that our hope solely rests on you, Lord, we understand that we, were, that we are all sinners in need of your mercy and your grace. And Lord, um, we can't stand before you apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, we praise you. We praise you for Jesus. We praise you for um, the fact that Jesus came, that he was born as a man, lived a perfect life, died on a cross as a substitute for our sins, making perfect atonement, and then rising again, and then ascending into heaven where he is seated now on the throne. So Lord, we give you praise and we worship you, O triune God. Lord, we love you and we ask that you would help us today. Lord, help us to see um, how you have built your church and how you are sovereignly at work and how you have used faithful men, Lord, to Uh, encourage your church and to strengthen us as believers in your church. So Lord, we pray that uh, your name would be exalted today, not John Owen's. Um, John Owen would want us, Lord, to glory in the fact of what you've done through the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. So we praise you for that, Lord. Um, Pray that you would bless this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, please be seated. Okay, today is week number six of the Puritans. I think I teased you at one point and said we were going to have a week seven, but the schedule does not allow for that. So this is the final week of the Puritans, and my new agenda when we come to an era in history is to conclude with a biography, and that is personal because I love biography and I love studying the heroes of the faith. 
So that's where we are today, talking about John Owen. What's really neat about this is the uh, Pastor Dan uh, taught and preached his biographical message at the beginning of the year on John Bunyan. John Bunyan and John Owen are contemporaries. They're living at the same time, and they're different people. They live in different social circles. They have different views on church governance. Um, yet, um, there are many similarities, and there is great fellowship and relationship between the two of them, and some of that will come out today in our lecture on John Owen. Okay, so just as it's been almost five weeks since I talked about the history of the Puritans, so it's been a while, but remember, we're talking primarily here in the Puritans, the Puritan age is around 1560 to 1660, 1680, that's kind of the age we're looking at in England, okay, I've narrowed our focus to talk about the English Puritans, so that is, that's, some people refer to that as the Puritan century, um, and there's a lot of different things happening there. The 1560s begin during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. She becomes queen in 1558, um, and she kind of has this, what's called the Via Medea approach towards uh, the Anglican worship, um, and the Puritans are saying, hey, the Anglican worship is not biblical in their view. Um, it has a lot of carryover from the Roman Catholic uh, view of worship, especially in the worship service. Uh, so um, the Puritans are wanting to purify the church, and that's what's happening. Um, Owen kind of fits right at the middle to the end of this Puritan era. He actually dies in, I think, 1683. Did I put that down? Yes, 1616 to 1683. So he lives for 67 years. Um, so that kind of is the end. One major event happens after Owen dies, and that is in 1689, the Act of Toleration is passed in England, which allowed for there to be toleration among different branches of Protestantism, allowing for, allowing it not to be illegal to be a, uh, a Presbyterian or a, an independent or a Congregationalist or a Baptist, so religious freedom has come to England in 1689, six years after Owen's death. But he's a champion for that, and we'll talk about that too. So that gives you an idea of where we are in history. The middle part of Owen's life is a major uh, um, event in the history of England, and that is the English Civil War. Parliament is led by the House of Commons. Those of you guys that really love British politics, no one's raising their hands. I don't understand why. There's a House of Lords, House of Commons. The House of Commons is the primary engine running Parliament during this time. And the king, there's a battle between who's going to rule England, and ultimately Parliament wins out. The king is executed, and Oliver Cromwell reigns as Lord Protector of England as he oversees Parliament, not as king. That is the time of John Owen when he rises to prominence um, and eventually... Uh, the, the monarchy is restored, and he's lowered in prominence. So that's kind of, those political things are happening during the life of John Owen. All right, so more introduction just about the man versus just the social aspects and the governmental things that are going on there politically. Um, uh, John Owen is referred to often as the Calvin of England. 
So just the, the importance of him as a theologian. Um, England isn't noted for great theologians. There's a few. Um, Cranmer comes to mind. Uh, Owen obviously comes to mind. A lot of the Puritans as theologians. Um, the most famous um, theologian coming from England prior to Owen, and maybe Thomas Cranmer you could debate as well, is Pelagius. So he was a heretic. <laughs> so a lot more theologians uh, coming from the continent versus um, England. There's some others too. We can talk about them, but he is a primary one. But that, that was back in the ancient periods around 400 A.D. Uh, so he's, Owen is, however, the greatest of the Puritans as a theologian. He served faithfully as a leader at Oxford, and then after he left Oxford, he pastored several, several congregations as a faithful pastor. Uh, J.I. Packer, and you have this on your handout, says about Owen, for solidity, profundity, massiveness, and majesty in exhibiting from Scripture God's ways with sinful mankind, there is no one to touch him. Um, Jonathan Edwards said that Owen's writings were to be valued above all human writings in referring to the gospel. So any human writing, anything not Scripture, he valued Owen. Um, Dates for Owen's life, which I already referred to, are 1616 to 1683. So about 40 years of his life was made up the Puritan century. And that saw the end of the monarchy, the rise of the Puritan parliament led by Oliver Cromwell, which we also refer to that area, era of history in England as the interregnum, it's between two reigns. So Latin inter between, regnum meaning reign, rule. Um, um, so that's between the reign of different monarchs. Then we also see the return of the monarchy, the persecution of the Puritans, and then he dies in 1683. Okay, so that's the little highlights about him. Now let's dive into his life for biographical reasons. Uh, so he's born in 1616 in the small village of Statham, about five miles to the northeast of Oxford. There his father was a Puritan and a pastor, so he had Puritan sympathies and he was a pastor, and he mentioned his dad one time in all of his writings, one time, and he says this, I was bred up from my infancy under the care of my father, who was a nonconformist, who didn't conform to the worship and liturgy of the Church of England, um, he was a nonconformist all his days and a painful laborer in the vineyard of the Lord. That is all he mentions about his dad, who was a faithful pastor at this time. Um, he also had three brothers and a sister, obviously a mother as well. Not one time does he mention his mother, and only one time his dad, or his siblings. He doesn't mention his siblings at all in any of his writings. Um, and some people think that's very frustrating because those, those personal things are important for biography. Um, anyway, that's interesting. Usually we, I mean, if you, and maybe it's because Owen didn't like to talk about himself and write about himself. Maybe there's a humility to Owen, but I mean, the volumes we have about Luther and how he felt about things pale in comparison to what we don't have about Owen. Um, at age 12, he went to Queen's College at Oxford. So that's kind of the Queen's College represents kind of the secondary school. Don't think that, hey, he's 12, he's already in college, that's amazing. 
At that time, that was happening pretty regularly. He is a gifted student, but not any more gifted probably than other people at that time. However, there he began the habit of being a very intense student. Studious, studious, studious. And he, it be, he began the regular routine of only sleeping four hours a night. So that doesn't work for me. Might work for some of y'all, but not for me. So you students, only sleep four hours a night. I don't know if that's right or not. But um, At age 19, this is, there's some debate going on here about how um, much education he actually completed. Um, I have a couple different biographies that I, I appealed to. One says he received his master's at age 19 and got ordained. Others say he didn't. He got so frustrated with the Church of England, he didn't want to get ordained, and he didn't get his master's. So, I don't know. Surely there's records somewhere, but no one has unearthed them for sure. So, he leaves Oxford at age 19. And generally speaking, if you get your master's at that time in um, pastoral ministry, then you go into pastoral ministry. If you did that, though, you'd have to accept everything the Church of England taught. And you'd have to submit under the authority of the Church of England. And he had um, grievances against the Church of England, so he did not join the ministry, whether he had his degree or not. We do know he didn't join the ministry because of his Puritan leanings. At that time, the Church of England had a significant... So we're looking... This is the 1640s. The Church of England had a significant... uh, um, influenced by Arminian theology uh, in its leadership, and also its liturgy included what he would call various Romish elements. Um, 1618, 1619 is the Synod of Dort. So that's the Arminian-Calvinist controversy. The Reformed Church is responding to the Arminians. So this is still going on 30 years later in England. And you'll remember, you might not remember, but when we talked... Last summer, about the Synod of Dort, the Synod of Dort was in the Netherlands and it was responding to the followers of Jacob Arminius and the Reformed Church, the Calvinists, were giving responses to them about what is, who does what in salvation primarily, right? There was a contingent of English uh, leaders that were sent by Henry VIII to that Synod. So England was aware of that debate, involved in that debate, and um, yet the person that was overseeing the Church of England at the time, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was a guy named William Loud, L-A-U-D, and he was a convinced Arminian. All that to say, Owen did not want to enter the ministry in the Church of England. Got it? All right. So what does he do? Well, a lot of times at that, in that era, Puritans would take up jobs as chaplains or private tutors for wealthy families. You remember, this is, he's not a Puritan because this is prior to the Puritan era, but William Tyndale did the exact same thing. He served as a tutor and taught um, a Protestant-leaning uh, uh, messages or uh, devotionals to a, a rich household and served as a tutor for someone's family. So he was a private tutor and chaplain for wealthy families, yet he didn't find joy in that, and he actually experienced a lot of depression. Um, I think this is, we're kind of piecing that information together based on some biographical things in his works. Um, It is important for me to highlight again that we do not have extensive journals and letters from Owen. There's a a small pamphlet that you can get uh, that, that outlines 
some of his letters that had been recovered, but there's not many of them compared to so many other uh, noted people from church history. Um, Yet, what we do know is that he moves to London in 1642, and um, about five major events occur while he's in London in his life. The first thing, so 1642, um, this is King Charles I is king of England. William Loud is the Archbishop of Canterbury. So these guys are leading um, the Church of England and the church and the entire state of England at the time. So as he's there, five major events happen to him. Number one, and this is debated as to whether this is a conversion experience for Owen or he just received um, further assurance of his faith. So part of the depression he was experiencing was based on the fact that he was not assured of his salvation. So the first thing that happens to him in London is he receives assurance of his faith. And he does this by pretty ordinary means. He and one of his friends uh, decide to go to a church that's pretty well known. It's called St. Mary's Church Alderman Barry. I put that on your handout just so you could see how you spell Alderman Barry. Um, and he hoped to see uh, a noted preacher by the name of Edmund Calamy. And, you know, they're in London. Let's go see the most popular preacher. That's what people did, right? There's no TV, no movies. They went to see preachers. But Calamy was a convicted Puritan, a great preacher, and he wanted to see Calamy, he and one of his buddies. They get there, and Calamy is not there. Guess he didn't get the message that he wouldn't be there. Probably because there's no technology to say that. Um, so Calamy's not there, and instead of leaving and wanting to go see another preacher, Owen convinces his friend, let's just stay. And the guy stays, they stay, and the unknown preacher in church history preaches from Matthew 8, 26, which says, why are you fearful, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? And at that moment, um, Owen believed as he heard the message, that he was an adopted son of God as the word of God was preached. Um, his doubts about whether he was truly saved were now gone. And we can thank the Lord for this faithful brother who preached, who we don't know his name, um, that um, through his faithful preaching, the rich works that John Owen has given us on communion with God and the Holy Spirit are Uh, immeasurable um, in the history of the church, and we're grateful for the faithful preaching of this man. Um, That's what happens, right? It's God's Word using, God's Spirit using the Word of God to change lives. That's what happened to John Owen, Um, and that was the emphasis of his life, was God's Word through the Spirit, by the application of the Spirit, um, onto the hearts of people as he preached, and as everyone preached. So that's the first thing that happened. So we have five events. We're working our way through them. The second one is he got married. Um, he was married in 1644 to a woman by the name of Mary Rook. And they were married until her death in 1675. Guess what? We don't know anything about her either. <laughs> Except for one thing. They had 11 children. Ten of them died as infants or children. Ten. Ten of their 11 children. Two, particularly we know, died in 16... Two sons died in 1655 from a plague 
that went through all of London. So 10 of his 11, he and Mary's 11 children died before they became adults as young children. The 11th child actually died as an adult. Uh, so Owen preceded, his wife preceded him in death. So Owen buried his wife and all 11 of his children. So just, that's, that's, that's real life, real life for this pastor, preacher, leader of Puritan England, and he's experiencing these things in his life. Yet, very little is written about it. But you've got to think, how did that impact the psyche of this man? And how dependent was he on communion with the Lord? Um, I think if you have that backdrop, if you choose to read Owen, which I hope you do after this, um, if you have that, that little bit of biography uh, in Owen's life, he's not just this um, sc- uh, scholar, you know, uh, seated in an ivory tower. He's living real life and is experiencing intense suffering and difficulty in his life. So, uh, not to get you all emotional, but you need to know these things. Um, so that's what we know about Owen's family life, is that he buried all 11 of his children and his wife. Um, as I bring the room down further, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, third thing, so that's, that was item number two. The third thing, he publishes his first book in 1643. And as is usually my desire is to read you the entire title of the book. So he is a convicted Calvinist. Okay, I'm just going to say it because he is. He, he is holding fast to the Reformed view of salvation. So this is his book, and you can tell that just based on his book. Um, a display of Arminianism. So he wants to talk about what Arminianism is. Being a discovery of the old Pelagian idol, free will, with the new goddess, contingency, advancing themselves into the throne of God in heaven, to the prejudice of his grace, providence, and supreme dominion over the children of men. So he wants to exalt God's sovereign grace in salvation, and he sees this movement as diminishing that. So he doesn't sparse any words in his title. So you probably don't have to read the book to see what he has to say about that. So this is important because it enters him into public life as a controversialist. He is not afraid to attack really difficult issues and issues that are going to paint him against the establishment. Okay? So that's an important part of his life. He's a writer. He writes until he dies in 1683. Um, next, he becomes a pastor. So in 1643, a parish calls him to be a pastor in Fordham, in Essex, which is just like five to seven miles northeast of London. I had to research it. I was like, this has got to be a really great big town. It's going to be, there's 800 people in Fordham today. <laughs> I was looking for like a statue of John Owen or something, but there wasn't. Um, so Fordham in Essex, uh, just outside of London. So this was the beginning of him serving as a pastor for most of the remaining of his life. He didn't stay at that church very long for several reasons, but um, what, reveal, what that reveals to us is that he is a pastor most of his life, and he's writing 
as he's preaching. So the content for his writing is his preaching. Um, he wrote with his parishioners, and when he's at Oxford, his students in mind. Um, but he doesn't stay at Essex very long because of other events that happen in his life, which we're about to talk about. That's the fourth thing. He becomes a pastor. The fifth thing, he gets the opportunity to address Parliament. So Parliament, it's the House of Commons, has Puritan sympathies, and they, at certain times of the year, invited Puritan pastors to come and preach before um, the House of Commons. And he had the opportunity to preach. And he did, and that was a very important event in his life. There, for the first time, Oliver Cromwell heard him preach. And upon meeting Owen, he said, Sir, this is Cromwell about Owen, Sir, you are a person I must be acquainted with. To which Owen replied, That will be much more to my advantage than yours. <laughs> Knowing that... Um, Cromwell was going places. So that opened the door uh, for Owen to serve his country in different ways. He became a chaplain, the primary chaplain, in fact, for Oliver Cromwell's armies when they left England and pursued uh, their Puritan political agenda. How about that? That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, in the lands of Scotland and Ireland. And... Um, Owen had the uh, responsibility of preaching to the men, shepherding the men, and also um, identifying the spiritual state of the churches in Ireland and Scotland. That was his job. Um, and oftentimes, he would dispute some of the tactics that Cromwell used. You know, we've got a pastor here preaching, a guy that's going and um, causing warfare in other areas there's got to be some ethical dilemmas going on here. And oftentimes, Owen um, would preach to Cromwell's conscience. Um, so he assessed the church situations in those countries. And then upon his return in 1651, uh, Cromwell... Six, oh, I wrote this down somewhere. Okay, so 1649, Charles I is the king of England is executed by the Puritan um, parliament. So now it's, the country is ruled by the parliament and um, Cromwell is the leader. So that's when he takes off and goes to other lands. But in 1651, he returns. Uh, Cromwell returns to London, as does Owen, and he is appointed to the deanship at Christ Church College at Oxford. Okay? And then, a few years later, he was appointed vice-chancellor at Oxford. That's a pretty major role. Oxford's one. There's two great universities in England, Oxford and Cambridge, and Oxford um, was the one at that time that Owen was leading. And he served there from 1651 until 1660. So he is an academic, right? But he's also, uh, a lot of things happen at Oxford that he's responsible for. So that's our next point. So those, those were the five main points that happened to him when we went to England. So he converted, assurance of salvation, got married, he wrote his first book, he became a pastor, and he spoke in front of Parliament, which opened a lot of doors for him politically. Okay? That's what he did. So now he's at Oxford from 1651 to 1660. And he has a lot of responsibilities. So he is a university administrator. So he had to go through the applications for the students. He provided oversight to the properties. He collected rents. He administered discipline to the students. 
So he did all those things just in his role as an administrator. But part of his job um, at Christ, when he kept the job at Christ Church as vice chancellor as well, was he was the pastor of that church that met there at Christ Church Cathedral. So he was not only responsible for the university, he was also responsible for preaching and for the worship services. Um, He did everything that a pastor would do, and he preached several times a week during that time. And his goal at that time was to establish the whole life of the college on the Word of God. So he's convicted about uh, the sufficiency and supremacy of God's Word at that time. And he wrote, okay, so he's running, a, okay, he's running a university and he's pastoring a church, okay? That's a, that's a big job. But he also wrote, he's not sleeping though, remember? Got to remember that. I don't think he's yet started sleeping uh, at this time. Um, so he wrote extensively during this time. 22 works were published during this time, um, including his great work on his defense of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. He wrote some 660 pages on that during this time. Uh, 1656, he wrote of the mortification of sin in believers, one of his most important works. Uh, 1657, another one of his most important works is of communion with God and his fellowship with the Lord. And his, he writes about how he has communion with each of the individual members of the Trinity. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing, and it, a lot of what, when I talked about uh, a couple weeks ago uh, about uh, the Puritan emphasis on the Word of God comes from um, the communion with God from Owen. Um, 1658, he writes of temptation, the nature and power of it. Also in 1658, because he's not doing enough, he assists, okay, the dominant Protestant Puritan leanings of the time were Presbyterian, okay? That, those, that was the dominant, uh, the, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith is written for the most part by Presbyterians, and for a lot of his life, Owen supported the idea of being a Presbyterian, but he's kind of shifted during his time of Oxford, and he's no longer a Presbyterian. He's an independent. So, so the, the church, each church is independent. He's a Congregationalist. So that's, that's different. He's not a Presbyterian. Yet, the Presbyterians wanted there to be unity amongst the Protestants. Everybody wants unity at this time, right? The Church of England wants unity. They want conformity to their worship. The Presbyterians want unity. So they saw those that believed in a different form of church government. In their sense, it was a congregational one that was independent as uh, disrupting the unity of the church. So, um, Owen and some of his cohorts decide to write something that would defend the fact that we're not trying to do something different. So they write what's called the Savoy Declaration, which is pretty much a doctrinal statement for congregationalists and independence. Um, That happens in 1658 while he's at um, Oxford. Um, and pretty much most of the things they talk about in the Savoy Declaration are uh, in agreement with the Westminster Confession of Faith. A lot of it is word for word if you look at it. Um, however, they had a different view on church government. Um, but their goal was to show that the church wasn't too different and that they were not leading people away from the truths of Scripture. So that's, that's, 
this is a busy man. He's doing a lot of work in the 1650s. Um, it's, it's impressive, and like I said, he does not sleep. Uh, 1658, 1659, Oliver Cromwell dies. So, and actually Oliver Cromwell helped in these sympathies as him being an independent, because he was an independent himself. So, Cromwell dies. Um, they appoint his son, Richard, as the um, Lord Protector over England. Cromwell was offered a kingship, but he, with Owen's direction, he rejected it. Uh, but his son comes to power as the Lord Protector, and his son is a, is a, a vowed Presbyterian, and he vows to uh, not allow the independents to have too much power. So guess what happens to Owen? He gets kicked out of Oxford. He leaves. 1660, he moves uh, and becomes a pastor at a small independent church away from London. So from 1660 to his death in 1683, he serves as a pastor in a variety of different churches. Uh, the second week uh, that I uh, provide you guys lectures and talks, we talked about kind of all of the things that happened to um, um, persecute or all the laws that were put in place to limit what the Puritans could do. So even the Presbyterian Puritans. Um, and that's what the life he lives is uh, one that is kind of outside of what is legal um, as far as what the Church of England would allow. So one important part of history is Richard Cromwell comes to uh, power as Lord Protector. He's a terrible ruler um, and so bad that Parliament wants to get rid of him and they agree to bring back the monarchy. So the king is back and the king comes back with his Arminian theology and his Anglican forms of worship and we're just back where we started in the Church of England. Um, yet there's an intensity around making sure the Puritans and the independents don't have very much power. So that brings us to Owen, the rest of his life, 1660 to 1683. Here he becomes a staunch supporter, even more so, of independent churches. Um, he is referred to as the Atlas and Patriarch of Independency. So um, he supported an independent congregational model for church government. However, because he was in the minority, he saw the reason why he should support other views as well. So he fought for toleration for Presbyterians and even Anglicans. Um, his goal was for there to be theological orthodoxy in England, yet he was okay with different uh, systems of government to rule those individual churches based on people's consciences. Um, he said this, it seems... We are some of the first who ever anywhere in the world, from the foundation of it, thought of ruining and destroying persons of the same religion with ourselves, merely upon the choice of some peculiar ways of worship in that religion. He's pretty much saying is, hey, let's get the main thing right. And there's specific theological truths that need to be right, but it is okay to have different forms of church government. That's a, that's a revolutionary idea in the 1600s. Um, his views and his writings on this actually impacted the American colonies, um, very much influenced William Penn in the founding of Pennsylvania, which is the, the first colony that was, or one of the first colonies that was founded, allowing for religious freedom. Um, he also wrote a letter to the colonists in Massachusetts in 1669, talking about how 
the church in New England was treating Baptists, and he appealed to them to not mistreat Baptists. Um, if you remember your American history, um, the Baptists didn't get treated well in New England, and Roger Williams, who's kind of the founder of the American Baptist movement, I guess, or I don't know how you would describe it, he founds Rhode Island um, in the eyes of religious freedom. Lots of crazy stuff goes on there, too, so it's not all beautiful things that happen, but that's your American history lesson for the day. Um, so he served for 23 years in pastoral ministry. He kind of bounced from church to church, though, because different areas would have different emphasis of the laws that were in play at that time. Certain rulers would say, hey, you, you can't do that here, so he'd move somewhere else for safekeeping. It's really a mystery how this independent Puritan pastor, John Owen, that was so well-known, avoided being captured. He never got captured. And it could be, I mean, he, he had powerful, influential friends, and that helped keep him out of prison as a Puritan at this time. Um, unlike his friend Bunyan. Um, his goal in ministry was this. The first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by diligent preaching of the word. So lest you think he was doing, had other goals in mind, chiefly to write books or to defend certain things, his main goal was to preach God's word. In the 1670s, he used a lot of his... Um, political clout and influence to, to get John Bunyan out of jail. And he didn't succeed. Uh, Bunyan ended up serving the sentence that he was provided, and um, Owen was unsuccessful in getting Bunyan out of jail. He loved John Bunyan, and I know you guys are probably familiar with the story, but Owen had a dialogue actually with the king about Bunyan, Charles II, um, and, he, and Charles asked him why he cared so much about the uneducated tinker. That's Bunyan. And Owen says this about Bunyan. Could I possess the tinker's ability for preaching? Please, your majesty, I would gladly relinquish all of my learning. So the, the, the love that he had for Bunyan as a preacher. Bunyan's a Baptist. So we've got Baptist, Congregationalist, slash Independent, and he's working with Presbyterians, and he's even working through the Anglican hierarchy to set the Baptist free. This guy is all over the place, right? Uh, in his, not all over in his theological convictions, but all over the place in, in who he's uh, relating to and with. Um, he dies in 16... Oh, wait, wait a minute. This is very important. He never was able to get Bunyan released, and Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress while he was in jail. So just think, Owen, um, I, I want to get my friend out of jail, yet he stayed in jail, and Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. So what a blessing that's been for the history of the church. Um, so when he gets out of jail, Owen actually reads the manuscript and gives it to his publisher, and it's published. Uh, so happy, happy providence behind uh, difficult suffering for Bunyan. Owen dies in 1683, and he's buried in Bunhill Fields in London, which is kind of a Puritan burial ground. Right before he dies, the morning that he dies, a visiting pastor comes to him. His name is Payne, P-A-Y-N-E. And he comes to him and says, hey, pastor, Pastor John, um, your book, Meditations on the Glory of Christ, has just been published. This is the day he dies. Um, so he's excited about that. And this is what Owen says. He says, I'm glad to hear that. But oh, Brother Payne, the long-wished 
before day is come at last, in which I shall see that glory in another manner than I have ever done or was capable of doing in this world. Sees the glory of God and the future glory that he will receive in heaven. Um, His friend and assistant of many years, David Clarkson, said this upon his death, We have had a light in this candlestick, in this candlestick, which did not only enlighten the room, but gave light to others far and near, but it is put out. We did not sufficiently value it. I wish, I may not say our sins have put it out. We had a special honor and ornament, such as other churches would prize, but the crown has fallen from our heads. So the mourning and the great value they placed in the life of Owen. Um, Despite his independent leanings, some 60 noblemen in horse-drawn carriages were involved in his funeral procession. And ironically, five years later, Bunyan dies and is buried in the same cemetery. Neat uh, irony, I think. Okay, so that's Bunyan's life. And we have... I, I wanted to just give you some information about his works. So that's the next thing. And then we'll wrap up with just kind of what are some of his emphases in his works and his preaching and in his life. Uh, you can get, if you want, today, the works of John Owen. They are, he has... Um, it is $400 on Amazon today. Special, Actually, $398. Brand new. You can get it. Um, and the works of John Owen, it represents 9,000 pages of written word in 16 volumes. So probably like, it'll take a couple bookshelves. Um, and his works, there's the 16 volumes. Volumes 1 through 5 are doctrinal in nature. Uh, On the person and glory of Christ, you have this in front of you, communion with God, discourse on the Holy Spirit, justification by faith. Spurgeon said, if you master just those works, you'll be a profound theologian. So, no pressure. Read those 3,000 pages. Uh, He also has practical works within these volumes, and that's where mortification of sin is, temptation, his exposition on Psalm 130, and spiritual mindedness. So that's the second set of works. Then he has third, controversial works. This is where he's defending his theology. And this, his greatest theological work is the first one listed here, and that's the death of death and the death of Christ. And that is talking about the atonement and Christ's atonement for his people. Um, that's where you will find the doctrine of the saint's perseverance, uh, the true nature of a gospel church, and then the divine original of the scriptures, his appeal to the scriptures as authoritative. Um, in those he's treating, um, he is responding theologically against rampant Arminianism and Socinianism, which is a view of a non-Trinitarian view of God, kind of a Unitarian view. And he's responding to those influences that are going on in England at that time. Uh, he also wrote what we have translated now to be a biblical theology. This is outside of those 16, so this is another volume. And there's a long Latin term for that. Did I give that to you? I don't want to say it, because I don't know how to say that first word. But Michael Reeves commented that instead of calling, translating that a biblical theology, it's better to be referred to as theological statements of all sorts. So it's just him riffing about theological issues and comments. So that's his biblical theology or statements of all sorts. 
Then the last piece of writing, this is just astounding. He has a seven-volume set of up to 4,000 pages of a commentary on Hebrews. So those are his 24 volumes that are available to us today. And there's some small reprints of some letters as well that you can get. Uh, Joel Beakey, who is probably the most uh, renowned Puritan scholar in America, uh, he recommends reading these works of Owen if you want to. And you can get these in a little paperback. You don't have to get the entire volumes. Okay, uh, Communion with God, uh, The Glory of Christ, The Holy Spirit, and Apostasy from the Gospel. I don't know anything about it. Um, so he's saying if you're going to be introduced to Owen, pick one of those works. Um, mortification probably would be very good to read, but it's a little bit difficult. And then the death of death and the death of Christ is a gigantic work and not easy to read, but probably be worth your efforts if you are inclined to do that. Um, so the emphasis of Owen's life is a couple of things. Um, one, I'm just, these are just things I wrote down as I was just thinking about that in the last day, actually. Um, one was an orthodox in elevated view of the triune God. Loved the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity and spent a lot of time talking about it. Um, uh, the Bible, uh, the supremacy of the Bible, the sufficiency of the Bible, the authority of the Bible, and the Bible for the believer and how the Bible and the Holy Spirit cooperate together for the growth of the believer. The person, the work of Christ, the necessity of the church, and I think the, the thing that probably, those, those are important, but I think the thing that he wants to shout is the holiness of God. God is holy. Um, and then the importance of the holiness of the Christian. You are, God is holy, God has saved you unto holiness, so pursue it. Um, man should be holy. That is the goal of his life. And he would say the appeal and the ability to do that is through God's word and through the Spirit working through God's word. And that's what Owen, if you read, pick up any of these, I think I would really recommend the communion with God. I mean, just because it, it's probably going to help deepen um, your life and your fellowship with the Lord in reading his word and studying it and praying. Um, um, and remember, Owen's not this elite. He is, let me rephrase that, he is an elite academic theologian, but he's not exclusively that. He's a person that's living a life of suffering um, and desiring to see holiness in the people that he's teaching and preaching to. So I think that's important to realize. And what he's teaching and preaching, he's applying it to his own life as well, so it's practical, like all the Puritan works are, it's practical to you. Okay, that is John Owen. I commend him to you, and I would hope that you'd be inspired to read more about the Puritans. This is uh, my last week, like I said. Um, next week, we will have a guest speaker, our missionary from Mexico, Chris Johnson, will be here. And the following week, I think Joe is teaching. So praise the Lord, we'll get Joe back in the saddle, and that'll be a blessing to us. All right, let's pray. God, we praise you for this time. Lord, we ask that you would help us as we uh, fellowship with each other and as we go to the worship service. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would uh, worship you in spirit and in truth with minds engaged and hearts aflame for your glory 
and our joy. In Christ's name I pray, amen.